Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Shalom, good morning. Kia ora tato. Kia ora nisambula, namaste, and salam alaikum, and welcome to this morning's Aspects of Israel program, brought to you by David Zwartz on behalf of the Zionist Federation of New Zealand. The situation in Ukraine is not improving, and if anything, getting much worse, and Israel is very much concerned <coughs> excuse me, concerned about what is happening there, as well as being involved in several different ways. The, it, Israel has accepted refugees, both Jewish and non-Jewish. It has also sent a great deal of aid, uh, some of it government aid. A lot of it was donated by community groups all over Israel and transported to Ukraine by the Israel government, and also the at, at a very early stage, um, Israel sent a mobile field hospital, but after six weeks operating there, Israel has closed it and is returning it to Israel. It was set up in Mostiska, which is about, <coughs> sorry, I've got something in my throat. Something, it was about, which is about 50 kilometers west of Lviv, and it was called Kohav Mayer, Shining Star, which is actually a pun on the name of the former Israeli Prime Minister Golda Mayer, who was born in Ukraine. During its six weeks there, the hospital treated more than 6,000 patients and delivered one baby. These were not war-wounded people, but civilians who otherwise would not have been able to get the treatment because of Ukraine's present very precarious condition following the Russian invasion and, and uh, well, things have really broken down. As for, well, as far as infrastructure is concerned, you can understand that they're on a, a war footing and people with ordinary medical problems had nowhere to go, so the Israeli field hospital filled the gap. And the hospital's original plan was for four weeks operation, but that was extended to six weeks. They had one change of personnel during that time. Nobody knows, there's a lot of conjecture, nobody knows what is going to happen with the warfare that's going on there, the, the invasion by Russia and the defensive action taken by Ukraine, which seems to have been far more successful than the Russians expected. And they have indicated that they will not now try to take over the whole country, but concentrate on two things, the two areas which they have recognized as being separate from the state of Ukraine uh, and uh, in the east, bordering Russia, and also they want to 
take control of the strip of Ukraine along its southern border where it meets the Black Sea so that they have a land corridor between Russia and the Crimea, which they annexed in 2014. And already they have had been rebuffed to some extent in the east, but they have taken control of the city of Mariupol, although there are still apparently many civilians there in dire state because they're living underground and don't have any or have very little access to food and water and medicines and care and so on and have not been able to evacuate either because of breakdowns in the agreements between Russia and Ukraine about the safety of people being evacuated. So on on that corridor, it seems as if Russia is more likely to be successful. But what will come out of final state of fighting or if there is to be a a truce or some other agreement is, is still not known and it's not even clear whether there are negotiations taking place, which incidentally Israel had some involvement in at an earlier stage because they have links with both Ukraine and Russia. But what the, what the state of those talks are is, is being quite um, secretive, naturally, although the United Nations Secretary-General has visited Ukraine, but the United Nations on the whole has not been able to do anything or appears not to particularly want to do anything. And of course, since Russia has a veto in the Security Council, which is the body that might take action, which is authorised to take action in situations of warfare, uh, the United Nations is simply stymied from doing anything. In, in Israel itself, it has been a difficult few weeks because the Ramadan observance has taken place and there has been quite deliberate attempts to create disruption on the Temple Mount. But Ramadan finishes today and on the whole, the Israeli government and the Israeli people feel that it has not been as bad as certainly as it was last year when the disruption on the Temple Mount was the excuse given by Hamas in Gaza to fire more than 4,000 rockets and missiles at Israel and Israel responded with the attacks on Hamas installations and weapon arsenals and so on that caused a great deal of damage. Uh, This was in May last year. But this year, things were not so bad. And and I think there had been a great deal of preparation, talks with Egypt, talks with Jordan, to try and head off the worst of 
violence that might have occurred. The, according to the Times of Israel yesterday, the Islamic Waqf, that's the organization that administers the Temple Mount compound in Jerusalem, estimated that some 160,000 people attended prayers on Friday, which was the last Friday afternoon of the fasting month of Ramadan. After early morning clashes on Friday had erupted at the holy site, but they consisted of Palestinians throwing rocks and launching fireworks towards the Israeli police and throwing rocks onto the Western Wall area, which is below the Temple Mount. Masked men also waved the flag of Hamas. But the clashes ended after about an hour when other Palestinians in the compound intervened, convincing the stone throwers and the police to pull back. And and as a result, those 160,000 people were able to pray peacefully. But last... Well, another aspect, another good aspect of what went on on the Temple Mount over Ramadan, that last Wednesday night, over 100,000 Muslim worshippers took part in mass prayers at the in the Al-Aqsa Mosque for the holiday of Laylat al-Qadr, Night of Destiny, marking the day that Muslims believe the first verses of the Quran were revealed to Muhammad. Police barred non-Muslims from visiting the compound from Friday, it's day before yesterday, until the end of Ramadan, which is today, to reduce tensions. And that's a policy that has been in place for several years and is directed really at people, one might say, well, extremist Israelis who want to provoke the Palestinians, the Muslims who have come to worship, and it's just as well to make sure that they are not allowed, are not able to cause that provocation. Looking to something that is less contra- confrontational, last Thursday, 28th of April, this is also from the Times of Israel, Israelis across the country came to a two-minute standstill to commemorate Holocaust Martyrs and Heroes Remembrance Day called Yom HaShoah, the Day of the Shoah, in honour of the six million Jews killed by the Nazis during World War II. In an annual ritual at 10 o'clock in the morning, sirens sounded across the country and people everywhere stopped what they were doing, including driving, to stand still and silently. There are three Israeli national holidays in the one week, begun by the observance of Yom HaShoah. Then comes Yom HaZikaron, which is a memorial day for soldiers killed in Israel's wars. And then Yom HaAtzma'ut, Israel's Independence Day. On Yom HaZikaron, Israelis flock to cemeteries to visit the graves of thousands of fallen soldiers and terror victims. The next day, Yom HaAtzma'ut, 
There's a switch to celebration of the day 74 years ago when David Ben-Gurion read aloud the Declaration of Independence on the 14th of May 1948. All day Thursday, Yom Hatzmut parades, picnics and partying will round out a highly emotional week. And you'll recall that the Declaration of Independence has specifically says that Israel wants to live in peace with its neighbours and held out a hand of friendship. But in fact, the very next day in 1948, on the 15th of May, armies from all of the neighbouring Arab Muslim nations invaded Israel. And that was the war of independence, and which ended in truces between Israel and all of its neighbours. In 1949, and since then, of course, uh, Israel has had peace treaties with Egypt in 1979 and with Jordan in 1984, and since then, more recently, has signed what are called the Abraham Accords with four other Muslim countries. And Bahrain, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, and the United Arab Emirates. And this has seen a very major shift, a a cataclysmic shift in the relationship between Israel and the Arab world, which everybody hopes will lead to more such agreements and more such friendship breaking out, so to speak, harmony breaking out, recognition breaking out, and not only at the level of diplomatic signatures, but also at the level of people going visiting each other's countries, particularly Morocco, because a large number of Israelis have Moroccan antecedents, and United Arab Emirates, which uh, has always had a sort of friendlier attitude to Israel and, in fact, has had a a Jewish population which has been quite involved in the society of the, the different entities making up the United Arab Emirates. Let's have a, a music track, and this is from the singer Yair Dalal. It's a CD called Asma, and this track is A Prayer for Peace. The singer is Maureen Nehedar. Eloheinu shebarashamayim re'e bedochak hashara 
for peace which we all want so much for Israel especially the Israelis themselves and which Israel may be Israel and its neighbors may be inching towards on, on with, with, with more hope in their hearts than, than for very many years in spite of the violence in other parts of the Middle East and in Ukraine at the moment. Well, the time is 19 minutes past 11, and you're listening to the Aspects of Israel program here on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, Wellington's Access Community Radio Station, which began in 1981 and is available for any minority Group which doesn't have access or attention access to or attention from the mainstream media, and so the minority ethnic groups and religious groups and political groups and special interest groups of Wellington region, Wellington City, and Upper Hutt and Lower Hutt and Porua make full use of this, and so. Access Radio has been providing a wonderful service to the Wellington community for 40 years, 41 years now. Just a couple of sporting items. Israel's Timna Nelson-Levy, 
won a gold medal at the European Judo Championships in Bulgaria on Friday. She's only the second Israeli woman to win gold in the history of the tournament. Nelson Levy beat Olympic silver medalist Sara Leone Sizik in the final of the women's under 57 kilogram contest. Her teammate won bronze in the under 48 kilogram category. Nelson Levy, who's a 27-year-old native Jerusalemite, is the first Israeli woman to win gold at the Euro Champions since Yael Arad in 1993. That's quite a long drought. Judo is, is one of Israel's strongest sports, with Israeli judokas taking home five of Israel's nine Olympic medals. And the other item, which has a New Zealand connection, the Kiwi cyclist Patrick Bevan won the overall title at the Tour of Turkey, which finished, I think, about a week ago, riding, but he, he rides with an Israeli team. It's called Israel Premier Tech, tech Team, Israel Premier Tech Team. Uh, and this, I, I got that snippet from the New Zealand Herald, oh, it, it, which was, it was on the 17th of April, so it's a couple of weeks ago, that he was successful in uh, keeping ahead of everybody else for the tour of Turkey. I'd like to go into some detail on the question of water, which is a very considerable concern, certainly here in in New Zealand at the moment, where we've got the controversy about the three waters and so on. But Israel is a country that's more than half desert, often hit by drought, as is the whole of the Middle East, and it's in a world getting hotter because of climate change. So how is it that it's become a nation that now produces 20% more water than it actually needs? Well, the answer is that Israel has pioneered technological innovation and infrastructure to prevent the country drying up. And in fact, it is able now to export water, sells water to Jordan, to the Palestinian Authority, and is able to make sure that Gaza, for instance, gets good water. About 4 billion people, which is two-thirds of the population of the whole globe, suffer extreme water scarcity for at least a month a year. But thanks to 70 years of relentless determination, Israel has become a lifeline and source of hope for other water-deprived countries. Israel's expertise, technologies and policy strategies are actively shared through organizations like Mashav, which is the government overseas aid organization, Keren Kaimet L'Israel, known in English-speaking countries as JNF, the Jewish National Fund, Eco-Peace Middle East, and also the Arava Institute, which, is, which researches living in a hostile, arid climate because the Arava Institute is actually situated in the Arava Desert in the south of Israel. Incidentally, this I'm reading from an article that appeared in, on the website Israel 21C, which comes as weekly 
articles about Israeli technological developments. So the first problem Israel faced was the uneven distribution of fresh water throughout the country because in the north there were rivers, Jordan, others coming off the higher part of Israel, mountain, mountainous Galilee, northern part. But the south was arid and desert. And it's interesting that, that the Zionist leader and great thinker, Theodor Herzl, recognized this in his book, which was published in 1902. It's called Alt Neuland, Old New Land. And, and he sort of, in his mind, projected what Israel could become. Well, it, was no, it wasn't even Israel at that time. It was still part of the Ottoman Empire. But he had a vision that it would become the populated homeland of the Jewish people. And he, in this book, he, he had a so-called fantasy plan to transport water long distances from the north, where it exists, as I mentioned, and also the Lake uh, Kinneret, the Sea of Galilee, is, is a large body of water. And he, he postulated that it was that it, somehow this water would be transported throughout the whole of the land of Israel and, and could make it flourish, make the desert bloom. So soon after the Israeli independence in 1948, the government began building the national water carrier pipeline, which was pumping water from Kinneret, from the Sea of Galilee, to central and southern Israel. When it was completed, 80% of that water was used by agriculture. And, and you will recall that at that time, the biggest development in Israel was through the kibbutz movement, and they were focused on growing food, and so they needed water. And that's where 80% of all Israeli water resources were channeled. But at the same time, a father and son, Simcha and Yeshayahu Blas, developed drip irrigation. This was in 1959. I think the water carrier, national water carrier, was finished in 1958. And the breakthrough of their invention was delivering water directly to the roots of crops, not irrigating by sprinklers or by flooding fields, but taking water drop by drop to the roots of plants. And that avoided evaporation. That program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.